Have you ever been given a gift that took more from you than gave you? Everybody's had one of those kind of gifts, right? Someone gave me, gave our family a, a fish tank uh, with fish and it just ends up being a problem, right? My husband and I gave our daughter a dog. <laughs> Boy, has that ended up being more work than, <laughs> than it was intended. Ah, lovely Bucky. He's wonderful, but he's a pain as well. I got, I got a gift from my sister uh, a few years ago. She's really into Norwex, which is cleaning products. <laughs> And she gave me a whole lot of Norwex and you kind of go, okay, so I'm going to get these cleaning products and then I'm going to have to clean. And that's uh, is pretty much what that gift means. But if we imagine for a moment, as we were talking about last week, that the Sabbath was given as a gift to humanity, given as a gift to God's people. And yet it was also a requirement that they keep it. So this idea that God had given this gift of rest and delighting and being restored to his people. But the practice of accepting that blessing meant that they were forced into a place where they had to keep it. And so what ended up happening over a period of time as they were, as they were forced into this place of having to keep it, and, and honestly on pain of death, it was initially, to make sure that they did because it was good for them. What ended up happening over a period of time is that the the religious leaders started to put scaffolding around the gift to ensure that it was never broken. And so the ancient rabbis wrote Mishnah, which was a collection of laws, rules and principles designed to ensure that the law of Moses was fully adhered to so no one unknowingly broke the Mosaic law by accident. And so, you know, instead of the idea, you, you know how you kind of you go up and you, you tow the line, you get right to the very edge of the cliff, they made sure that nobody got even close to the edge of the cliff. And so they put all of these laws into place to ensure that no one would ever break the Sabbath and not just the Sabbath but all of the other laws as well. And so effectively, in order to keep the Sabbath holy, it became legalistic. And it had all of these other rules built into it, which in essence meant that the rest and the restoration and the blessing that Sabbath was meant to be got clouded over by all of the rules that were imposed. And so you get this kind of legalism in there and then you hear about these crazy things that are happening. I heard about a woman in in Melbourne who came running out of her house one day and runs up to a a perfect stranger and says to them, I need you to come and turn the gas off in my house because my three-year-old son turned the gas on on the stove and I can't turn it off because it's Sabbath. And so it's this, this kind of restriction of the gift to the point where it becomes so legalistic that it becomes a burden rather than an actual gift. And so in some ways, I mean, the Jewish people would still say that Shabbat is a gift, that it's a gift to them to be able to rest and to restore every single week, and it absolutely is. But the rules had become so intense that they took a lot of the blessing and the gift away from the experience that it was meant to be. Now, what we need to recognise, I mean, Jesus kind of gets 
mixed up in the middle of this with the Jewish leaders, right, and the Gospels, and that's where we're going today to have a look at how Jesus responded to the Sabbath and Sabbath keeping. But we need to recognize at the beginning of this, Jesus practiced Sabbath. He wasn't somebody, he didn't come along and just go, oh, nah, nah, you know. (laughs) You know, Sabbath was for man, not man for the Sabbath, therefore I don't really care about it. Like he grew up with Shabbat. He grew up Sabbath keeping. And it's only into that context of Jesus going, Sabbath is important And I want to actually hold it up as being something that we should do and we should practice and we should be a part of. We should recognize it as a gift from God. It's only into that context that Jesus then started to shift the rules a bit. And it's not that he was breaking Sabbath. It was that he was breaking the Mishnah, which are all of those extra rules, keeping people from the edge of the cliff. So The first thing I think that we need to notice about the way that Jesus responded to Sabbath is that he healed an extraordinary amount on Sabbath. The amount of times that he healed on Sabbath far outweighs the times that he healed any other time. Um, So the first one, uh, the exorcism in Capernaum. Um, So he he, he made a practice of teaching in the Capernaum synagogue on Shabbat. And one time Mark and Luke record that he delivered a man from an evil spirit And then he goes home and heals Peter's mother-in-law on the same day. After sundown that day, so after Shabbat had finished, he healed, um, the Bible says, many people, but we're not given any more details about that. So in in the synagogue on Shabbat in Capernaum in the town where he was living at the time, Peter's hometown, he goes out of his way to heal somebody. Um, And, of course, there's the expected backlash of that. The next one is the healing of the withered hand. So once again, in the synagogue in Capernaum, knowing that he's being watched, he heals a man who had a withered hand, arguing that doing good and saving life is permitted and right on Shabbat. Um, The pool of Bethesda, when he healed the paralytic and tells him to carry his mat, pick up his mat and go home. If you've seen that, that on The Chosen, that's such a good episode. If you haven't, you really need to watch that one. Oh, that's a good episode, that one. And I like that John's in the background with his little notebook (laughs) taking notes. It's kind of cool. So he heals a paralytic and tells him to carry his mat, spurring accusations of Sabbath breaking once again. Jesus argues that healing in general is equivalent to the permitted Shabbat activity of circumcision. So he goes, well, hang on a second. If it's the eighth day after a, a, a baby boy is born, you're still going to circumcise them on the Sabbath. So why are you saying that it's okay for this, but you're saying it's not okay for that? And so he's saying a cleansing ritual, which circumcision is, is permitted. Therefore, I should be able to heal this person of whatever it is that has caused their issues. He heals a blind man in John chapter 9 on Sabbath. He makes clay with spit and dirt on Shabbat and heals a man born blind and is investigated for it by the Pharisees. He heals a crippled woman in Luke chapter 13. She'd been bent over double for 18 years, arguing that setting her free is equivalent to permitted Sabbath activities of watering animals. So she's, he's actually going, I'm going to link it to, well, if you can do this, then I can do that. And if you can do this, then I can do that. And, uh, and so he's one by one kind of breaking down all of these rules that had been added in order to stop people going over the line. Um, he heals 
a man of dropsy at a Pharisee's house. Um, he, he was swollen with fluid and then he argues that it's equivalent to the permitted Sabbath activity of rescuing an animal from a well. So Jesus is, he is somebody who keeps Shabbat himself, but he recognises that all of the rules that had been placed around it were taking away the blessing and the gift that it was meant to be. And so he's saying, effectively here, what you need to recognise is that Shabbat is for your connection with God not your separation from him. It's not meant to be something that keeps you from God or makes you feel like God is angry with you if you don't do it. It's meant to be something that when you engage in it, you get to experience and connect with Almighty God. So I actually think there's there's possibly a couple of reasons as to why he healed so often on Shabbat. The first one is that perhaps he was trying to get them to wrestle with the point of Shabbat and the character of God who gave it to them. God himself is good and he didn't give Shabbat to them to trip them up like a mean, nasty, cosmic, cruel person who was going, I'm going to give you a tightrope to walk on and then I'm going to try and prod you so that you fall off it so I can point the finger at you and punish you. It's a, it's a wrong vision of who God is. And he's this angry, judgmental God who is trying to give us ways to fail so that he can then punish us and judge us for it. Uh, so Jesus could very well have been in the midst of this showing them, well, no, actually, God is behind Shabbat. Therefore, the healing power of God and the goodness of God, you're going to find it in Shabbat. So I'm actually showing you that it's a good thing and that he is a good God. But I actually think the second is probably a more likely reason or a better reason. And that is because Shabbat is actually a day for healing and restoration. And so it's totally logical that Jesus would go out of his way to heal on Shabbat, that he would use the day that is meant for our restoration and our healing as the day uh, where he would heal and restore and bring people to a right place um, bodily as well as spiritually. So Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says this. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why don't we rattle that off? You ever think about how is it possible that Jesus' yoke is easy? Like if there was ever a person who should have a yoke that's not easy, <laughs> it really should be Jesus, right? At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And he answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, 
you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, and looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Now, it's no surprise that in the writing of this, this section that, that Matthew is writing for us starts with, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and then goes on to two instances of apparent Sabbath breaking one to do with being fed and one to do with healing. He links them all together because what he's wanting to show us is not only is Jesus Lord of the Sabbath, as he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, but he's wanting to show us that rest and restoration is linked with the practice that God has given us and this gift that he's given us. Um, He's trying to teach us about the character of God, blessing his people through rest. Mark chapter 2, 27 says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. If we want to bring that into current language, the Sabbath was made for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath. So the whole idea is it was given to us. It was given to us, for us, for our good, so that we would be able to participate in it and that we would be blessed not so that we would serve it. And it becomes so about it that we miss God in the midst of it. What's really sad is that in an effort to keep Sabbath practice set apart wholly, the authorities neglected to find God in it. Extraordinary. And yet it's so easy for us to look and tut-tut at the teachers of the law and not see our own failings in exactly the same way. Because legalism has just as much chance of grabbing hold of our heart now as it did theirs then. Well, we can create so many rules and boundaries that we actually find ourselves, we we start pushing ourselves away from God without recognising what he has given us and coming to him in it. So the goodness and the character of God, these are the reasons. So it's um, one of the classic things, I think, for us to recognise and to try and wrestle with. That's not to do with Sabbath at all. It's to do with morality and values. Is to recognise that God doesn't say, here is what you should do and what you should not do because I want to make you uh, caged. I want to clip your wings and I want to take away your freedom. And so often we look at the law and we look at laws and rules from that perspective. And so we have conversations with our young people and we say, don't have sex outside of marriage. And we go, because the Bible says so, because that's what God says, period. But the point of it, right, is, No. (laughs) Why does God say this? 
Why does he have this moral? Why does he have this value? Because he wants the very best for us. And he wants us to thrive and he wants us to succeed. And so he recognises if you keep the covenant of sex inside of a trusting marriage relationship, then you thrive. You don't have all of the outside rubbish that can come and infect you, like literally and figuratively, okay? She tries to say carefully. (laughs) Why did I choose that one as an example? The point is, why? Because God is good. It's not because he's mean and he's a judge and he's trying to keep us from all the good stuff. No, it's trying to, he's trying to give us the good stuff. He's trying, us to, he's trying to show us the absolute best way. And yet what we have is that we've got a culture telling us that, that all of this stuff is good and therefore we're missing out. And in actual fact, it's completely actually the opposite. We just don't know how to necessarily explain it or to see it through that lens. Why does God say that? Why does he say that the Sabbath is good? Why does he say that morals are good? Why does he say all of these things and keep us on this straight path? Why? Because he's given us a purpose and he created us and he knows what's good for us. And so therefore he gives us boundaries that will help us thrive and succeed and do well. And so the more that we choose to obey him and live by his ways, the more likely we are to thrive and to reach the purposes that he's placed in front of us. And that's the way that we need to see Shabbat. If we get to the point even after these couple of weeks and we go, oh, okay, here's something else I need to figure out how to do. We've missed the point. There is a degree to which you have to go, yes, Lord, I'm going to obey you in this and it's going to be icky for a period of time as I try and figure out how to make it work. But... It should never be a case of I am going to place myself in a box of legalism that is going to cause me to resent God. It should always be from a place of what is the Lord offering me that will make me see him and experience him more powerfully? And then I'm going to jump into that with both feet. Make sense? Yeah, so it's a warning for us as well. If we choose to engage in in Shabbat practices, it needs to be done with focused pursuit of intimacy with God. Therefore, we need boundaries to keep us remembering and observing it, but not rules that keep us from him. Boundaries that keep us remembering and observing it, but not rules that keep us from him. So... The Pharisees get very, very upset. And actually what I find fascinating is that of all of the things that they're annoyed with Jesus about, this is the one that gets them plotting to kill him. Shabbat breaking. Wow. Interesting, right? There's some power behind that. So they decide they're going to kill him. And ultimately, of course, as we know, their plotting works, um, which leads to the crucifixion uh, of Jesus. Now, Jesus is crucified on Preparation Day, the day before Shabbat. Joseph of Arimathea buries him before the Sabbath begins. And the women who wish to prepare his body keep Sabbath rest according to the commandment. And then they intend to finish their work on the first day of the week. And so this is why we have Jesus in the tomb. In actual fact, looking at the dates of it, it's possible that there was a day of atonement in the middle of this as well. In fact, I would say probable. There's arguments about it. 
that there was a Day of Atonement in the middle of that as well. So we actually have two Sabbaths back to back. In which case, Jesus is in there for three days and the women have come at the end of their Sabbath rest to anoint the body and finish what they had to do. That's why they need to get him down off the cross before sunset and have him buried. But what I do find fascinating about that is that Jesus' body, even in death, rests on Sabbath as well. Hmm, interesting. Shabbat is a day for healing and restoration. Jesus himself was resting in a tomb on Shabbat, and the greatest healing and restoration came from that Shabbat than any other in history. So not only did he heal, you know, walk around and heal people and heal a hand and heal someone from dropsy, but he healed humanity on Shabbat as well. It's kind of cool just to note even that our creation and our salvation began with the blessing of Shabbat rest. That's kind of cool. Creation, humans created on day six. The first day is a day of rest and the crucifixion. Jesus crucified on the sixth day. The first day of the new creation is a day of rest. So that's kind of cool. So what I want to do is sort of talk about what Shabbat needs to be if we decide to engage in it and how it can look for us now because it's not going to look like it did for the Jewish people back then and it's not going to look even for us the way that it looks for Jewish people now. Because as, as we were talking about before last week, Jewish people live in community and close by each other and so Shabbat is something that they do together in community. For us it's much harder because we are sort of solitary within a whole community that are not experiencing or participating in it. And so we've got to figure out how do you navigate that and without being a such a stickler that you're basically a prude, <laughs> if you know what I mean, uh, if the rest of the culture is like, whoa, yeah, those Christian weirdos, but rather still engage. The first thing that we need to recognise is that it's not a day off. It, it is a day off, but it's not just a day off. Okay? So it is a day off set apart for connection with God. So when we say it's a day off, oh, I'm having a day off from work, what do you do with your day off if you've got a day off? Chores, right? You do the grocery shopping, you, you do the washing, you mow the lawn, you do all of these things because you've got a day off from work so therefore you work at home instead, basically. That's how we look at a day off. And so it's not just a day off. It's a day for holy rest and set apart for God. There's a whole theology of rest all the way through scripture, actually. It's a biblical theme of rest being God's ultimate plan for humanity. So all the way through the Old Testament, he'll say, I will take you to this, the promised land and then I will give you rest, yeah? And there's this resting once you get there, resting once the job is done. And then when you kind of jump into the New Testament, this theology of rest moves into the afterlife. You will have pain, you will have suffering, but... Beyond that, you will rest. You will have eternal rest. And so this theology of rest actually goes all the way through Scripture as the ultimate plan from God for us that we would be able to rest. The Garden of Eden was designed for rest and joy and completion until the fall. The promise of the promised land was spoken about as entering your rest, land flowing with milk and honey. Shabbat was given as rest for those who 
had previously only known slavery. Jesus speaks of giving us rest as we learn to live like him and draw from his living water. Eternal rest is the promised land for us beyond earthly death. Rest is a blessing from God. And those who can't rest are considered to be living a tortured existence. Biblically. So people, sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, but the, the devil never takes a day off. You know? Oh, well, you probably need a rest. You probably need a break. You should take a day off. The devil never takes a day off. As if that's somehow some sort of badge, like, oh, well, he never takes a day off, so therefore I can't either because I have to defeat him with the power of whatever. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly the point. The devil never takes a day off. Why? Because he's eternally tortured. <laughs> Rest is a good thing. It's something that we should grab hold of. It's a blessing from God. Jesus practiced Shabbat and we should follow him instead of the devil. <laughs> my, you know, I think that's a pretty good starting place. Jesus was highly sought after. People were in his face. They were asking for healing and teaching all the time, often seeking him out. Um, but note how much you read about Jesus sleeping. There's quite a bit actually that the writers of the Gospels go out of their way to tell us that he slept, you know, that he rested. They also tell us that he got up early in the morning and went and spent time with the Father, but, they, you know, there's a storm in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. Like literally it says that. He had his head on a cushion. Okay, thanks for the detail, John. But he withdraws. He sleeps, he withdraws, he takes quiet place, he takes time alone. You never get the impression that Jesus was hurried or that he was pressured or that he was stressed. He was rested. He always operated from a place of rest. And I love this because as we choose to then follow him, what it reminds me is I need to endeavour to follow him outwardly even when I can't necessarily feel that inwardly and and there's something I think there's some power to that to being the person who when someone says to you how are you not being the person that says I'm tired or busy even if you are being somehow from our mouths declaring I'm not going to be that I'm not going to be the stressed person I'm not going to be the hurried person I'm not going to be the busy person I'm going to be the person who finds my center in rest because I follow Jesus and that's what he models to me. Uh, so we're not going to get it right all the time. Obviously, we live in a, a fast-paced, crazy, nutcase society and we're often, often going to find ourselves getting caught up in that pace. But being the person who says, no, I'm actually going to learn the art of slowing, but I'm also going to demonstrate it by the way I speak. And there's something about the, the cultural counteraction of not agreeing with the way that society presents things. If it does become a badge of honour to be busy, actually choosing not to wear it. No, I don't want to have a bar of that, you know. Are you busy at the moment? No, not especially. <laughs> That'd be a cool way to answer it. Or maybe I might listen to myself and do that from now on. Um, yeah, he, he was someone who was never hurried. He would often sleep. One of my favourite verses actually in the, in the Gospels from an introvert is where the disciples all say, oh, everybody's looking for you. And he, Jesus' response, I can't remember exactly where it is. I think it's in Matthew somewhere. 
They say, everyone's looking for you. And Jesus' response is, let's go somewhere else. (laughs) I talk about not looking for celebrity, not looking for fame, not looking for crowds, not looking for recognition. He's just, yeah, well, I'm sure that he wasn't an introvert. He was probably the exact balance of everything, but the introvert in me likes that. Everyone's looking for you. Let us go somewhere else. So what Shabbat is or does, what we need to do is recognise that traditionally it needs to be a 24-hour period of time. Now, for some of us, we're going to go, I can't do that yet. And so if we want to start to obey, then I would encourage you just take a step. Take some time that's set apart. Ultimately, what we want to do is get to a point where every seven days there is a 24-hour period of time. I would also argue that the Jewish people have it right that it should start at sunset because what happens then is that you, you start off with a feast or some kind of celebration, often family time or something like that, but then you rest straight away. You get to rest. You don't start your 24-hour period of time in the morning, awake and ready to do things, you actually get a decent chance for your body to sleep overnight before the rest of the the following day, which means that you're starting from a place the next day of being able to, you've got your heads clear and you can, you know, do what, you can engage in your focused time with God from that place of rest. It includes resting and restoring. It involves delighting and worshipping. And when it's done in a cyclical rhythm, it affects the other six days of the week. And that's the goal, right, that you have this one day and then from that day you have the energy, you have the insight, you have the connection with God and the focus to be able to engage with the other six days in a different way. So Shabbat should involve stopping, resting, delighting, and worshipping. It should involve those four things. So consider what a 24-hour period could look like for you and what would achieve those four things, stopping, resting, delighting, and worshipping. Imagine the best restorative 24 hours for you and then I would say begin with planning versions of that. It does involve planning because if you're you're like me and you love to cook, (laughs) then, you know, I wouldn't say, oh, you know, you have to have all of your meals and everything all prepared, blah, blah, blah. I'm just, what is it? I I delight whilst cooking. I don't delight whilst cooking food that my kids don't want to eat because that's just annoying because I just get hassled by them all day about, I don't want to eat that, who eat takeaway? But I like to cook. I like to bake. So I include that because it's part of delighting. That's okay. But It is going to require planning because if you're a task-focused person and you look at uh, things that need to be done around the house that are taxing to you, you're going to want to do them on Shabbat if they're not dealt with already. So it does require that kind of planning. I would say turn off your phone. Now, I I would also be a hypocrite (laughs) because... Here's what I found when we started to engage with Shabbat. I turned off my phone and I switched it off at the switch for 24 hours and it was the most restorative thing to my soul. 
I couldn't be hassled by notifications, bing, all day long. No one could contact me. I couldn't see the news. Oh, even that within itself, you know, removing the constant noise. Our world is just noise, opinions, notifications, just heckling us all the time. And so to turn it off for 24 hours for me was so restorative. Having said that, I sometimes manage it and I sometimes don't because I also like to walk and listen to things. I try to never listen to anything political, but I'll listen to an audio book or whatever as I'm walking. And then if I'm doing that on my phone, then I'm getting notifications or whatever. But I would genuinely say if there's a way to get rid of the noise for 24 hours, do that remove technology. It'll be hard, but it'll restore you. And so I found it incredibly restorative. My family were just climbing the walls. What are you doing to me? Um, My gorgeous husband went out to his shed and he was just, I'm so bored. I don't know what to do. I need a device in my hand. Okay, whatever. Consider your personality. It's It's not meant to be a day of delight for introverts and torture for extroverts. It really, really isn't. Um, So add talking and honesty to it. Uh, Extroverts can connect with people deeply during Shabbat, so long as it's not a replacement for connecting deeply with God. So I would go, yeah, go and make a time to catch up with someone or do something fun that engages you, that helps you delight. And that's all part of it. So consider your personality. Don't just try and be something that you're not, but rather consider what restores and what delights. Fill your day with activities that are life-giving for your soul. So begin to distinguish, and I think this is really important, begin to distinguish between recreation and restoration. There is actually a difference. Begin to transition from entertainment, TV, social media, shopping, and going out to activities that deeply connect you to Jesus and his rest. So. Uh, Netflix and chill is restful, but it's not restorative, right? So you can rest in front of the telly, absolutely, but you can't restore in front of the telly. It doesn't actually input into your soul or restore you. And so if you want to use it for rest, cool, make sure there's something in your day that restores as well. So I would go walking is not resting. Walking is restorative for me very, very restorative. So I'm out two, two and a half hours on Shabbat walking. Continue doing things that renew you. So if there are things that renew you or refresh you or whatever, keep those as part of your day. Don't stop them because it's apparently work, like turning off a stove if your three-year-old turned it on. You know, if cooking delights you, renews you, just do it. Just keep doing those things and let's not follow the Mishnah in the way that we do Shabbat. Do things alone as well as together. Um, don't buy or sell. Now, this is an interesting one, and so I would I would also put the caveat on this that you don't have to be absolutely strict about it um, because I want to buy a coffee. But Nehemiah had this reaction to the way that Shabbat was being used in his time. When they were rebuilding the walls, they had some merchants come from Tyre and Sidon and they came and they were starting to sell all of their stuff and he was going, okay, but 
the Israelites are obeying Shabbat, but these guys are coming and they're selling, and because they're working and they're foreigners, the Israelites were going, that's fine, we'll buy from you. But his response was, no, I'm not going to buy from them. We're not going to buy from them. In fact, I'm going to lock the city doors so that they can't come in, the city gates so they can't come in, because Shabbat is not just about our rest, it's also about their rest. And so as soon as you buy from them, then you're allowing them to feel that they don't need rest. So I want to throw that in there as something to wrestle with, but not to be so dogmatic and legalistic about it that you say, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, go to the movies because I'll have to pay for my ticket or I'm not going to go and have a coffee because I'll have to pay for the barista to do this and so therefore I'm not encouraging their Sabbath. So let's be honest, most people are not going to follow it anyway, but I want to wrestle with this in a way that's obedient to the Lord so that I'm not forcing somebody else to work when they need rest as well. So remember it's about stopping, resting, delighting, worshipping. If you put all of your activities through that grid, it'll help. Is this thing that I'm going to do stopping, resting, delighting or worshipping? No, it's not. Okay, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing that on Shabbat. I'll leave that for another day. The first time it may feel great, but the warning is that probably for the next six or seven times after that, it'll be really annoying. You'll either feel bored, you'll feel like you wish you planned it better, or you'll just start to second guess whether it's a good idea in the first place. I want to say to you, if you push through that, you will find it to be an incredibly restorative practice and something that comes quite naturally. So there are some reasons as to why it might be hard. Firstly, you're teaching your soul something society has been counteracting for your whole life, <laughs> and that's hard to do. Number two, you're addicted to technology. You just are. You might think you're not, but you actually are. Number three, you won't plan as deliberately after the initial week and then you might find yourself bored, but that's okay. The habit will form. It just takes a while. Number four, the enemy doesn't want you to Shabbat. He does not want you to do it. He'll tempt you away from it with everything he can. So confess the hard stuff, you know, just to even just go to God and go, okay, I'm doing Shabbat today, Lord. I'm doing it out of obedience, but I've got to tell you, there's other things I'd like to be doing with my time. The Lord can handle that. You know, he can handle us saying that and just being honest with him about it. Can you help me with this? Can you show me how? What we need to remember when we engage in this practice, apart from it's about stopping, resting, delighting and worshipping, is that when Sabbath was given to humanity, it was for us to remember that God rested and we follow him and it was for us to practice, to observe the Sabbath. In other words, keep it. Make sure that it's holy. This one 24-hour period that God blessed so that we would be able to connect with him. So I want to encourage you as you think and pursue and pray about it, but I want to remind you, if you are getting into the place of legalism, remember this is meant to draw you to God. This is meant to draw our focus to him so that we can connect with him, so that we can be restored and renewed by him and so that we can be closer connected with him. And so the next six days of the week, we would notice him nearby 
and we would be uh, coming from living our lives, our work lives, from a place of rest, not from a place of constant rush and constant doing. So, and the wonderful thing about it is that because you guys are talking about this as a community, you can encourage and empower each other in it as well. And to recognise, you know, you'll get you'll get used to hearing, and you will have heard um, Matt and Tan at least anyway saying, "Oh, it's Sabbath, so I'm I'm not available," which is great. So you can encourage each other in that, you know, and recognise, "Oh, this person's not answering their phone because," or "I I send a text and they haven't replied because." Recognising this is the day that that um, that they're setting aside. You might find that there are some days that you, you go, are we going to do it this day as a family and it just doesn't work? That's been my experience, so I've had to sort of shift it and, and put my own day aside. Just do whatever you can to take a step to get as close as you can to the ultimate goal, which is how do I find a day and a way that I can stop, delight, rest and worship. Can I pray for you? I thank you, Lord, for your gift to us, that you are good, that you always come from a place of goodness and you always come from a place of the best for us. You don't leave us out to flounder on our own, but you always want the best for us. And so, Lord, as we are talking about this um, Sabbath practice, the opportunity to stop and rest and delight and worship opportunity to focus on you and to connect with you and to develop intimacy with you and an opportunity for healing and restoration to happen. Lord, I want to pray that for each of us you would show us ways forward, that you would give us, birth within us, ideas of how to do this better, of how to engage, of how to take just one step and then another step so that this becomes practice. But, Lord, that you would keep all of us from legalism. I I pray against the plans of the enemy to discourage us or to keep us away from it. And, Lord, I, I pray against his plans to make it legalistic for us because that will keep us from you. I just ask, Lord, that there would be a freedom and an absolute joy as we choose to engage with you in this. And, Lord, I pray that you would, I mean, you've already made the day holy, but I I pray that you would bless us in it, that it would be a true time of your blessing resting on us as we rest in you. Lord, that as we remember and we observe that day, one in every seven, and set it aside for time with you as a day set apart for you, And for our restoration, Lord, I pray for your blessing to be profound and abundant in us and on us and through us. And we ask all of these things in the matchless and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.